Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Did Cool Stuff, the podcast that does what it says in the title. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and every week I tell you about rebels and revolutionaries and school teachers. This week, it's school teachers. Actually, it's all three, um, rebels, revolutionaries, and school teachers. But anyway, our guest today is James Stout. How are you doing, James? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm very excited to learn about someone who is all those three things. James, have you ever been in a school? Uh, yes, yeah, I have. Multiple times, actually. How did, how did that go for you? Well, mixed experiences, to be honest. Uh, I found it difficult, both in the teaching and, uh, and learning role. A lot of, lot of discipline. Ah, wait, would you say that you're a teacher sometimes? Yeah, I can, I can sometimes be a teacher. That's a thing I can be. Okay, okay. Just, just taking notes. Okay, and our producer is Sophie. How are you doing today, Sophie? I'm doing well, Margaret. Thank you for asking. How are you? I'm doing okay. I, uh, I'm completely wired on caffeine because I'm drinking... Uh, a sparkling water that has a tiny amount of black tea in it. it has Are you drinking less... carbonation while podcasting? Oh, fuck. You've told me that I'm not supposed to do this. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, I basically don't drink caffeine, so this is going to be extra fun. I'm yeah. personally very excited about it. <laughs> uh, Ian edits our audio and Unwoman wrote the theme music. So, there, okay, there's this movie that I think rules and is not the subject of what we're talking about. It's also not Knight Riders. It's called The Trotsky. <laughs> Have you ever seen The Trotsky, either of you? There's <laughs> the no Trotsky? reason why you would. Yeah, no. The Trotsky. Does it, does it have an, any ice pick scenes? No, what it is, is it's, it's from 2009. It's Canadian. It's about a rich kid who thinks he's the reincarnation of Leon Trotsky. <laughs> Amazing. He pisses off his dad by organizing his workers, so his dad sends him to public school as like punishment. And mm-hmm. so he starts organizing the students. And the point of me telling you about this uh, movie that I quite like is a part at the end where um, some wild shit's happening and a character is forced to make a speech to rile up the students. And his speech is really simple. He's like, school sucks, right? People are like, yeah, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, whatever. He's like, should it? 
should should school fucking suck? No. And okay, that's a really simple part of a movie, right? <laughs> but I think about this all the time. Like school shouldn't suck. Yeah. Yep. There's Yeah, full full agreement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> when I was a kid, I hated school. I dreaded school. I developed an anxiety disorder in order to make myself actually sick in order to not go to school whenever possible. But kids need an, need an education and parents need childcare and school should exist. They just need to be really different. So there have been tons of people throughout time who've worked on that. And there have been experiments that have lasted generations. Some continue to this day. But today I'm going to talk about some of my favorite. I'm watching James get excited. Yeah, realizing right. what we're yeah. going to be talking yeah, about. Yeah. This is going to be great. <laughs> I'm going to talk about some of my favorite such experiments, including the modern school, popular education, and the ideas of a Spanish anarchist whose name is Francisco Ferrer. But yeah. I'm going to accidentally call him Ferrar over and over again because there's a bunch of people in my family named Ferrar. And so every time I see this, I think Ferrar, but Ferrer. Anyway, that's not the important part. Francisco overthrew assumptions about popular education and his ideas uh, got him murdered by the Spanish state. Uh, but his ideas outlasted him like yay. all of the best ideas do. Yeah. So, uh, but before I talk about him... We're going to talk about 19th century education and some of Francisco's precursors, who I like. Oh, good. Maybe just as much. Some of them I maybe even like more. Um, have you? How, how much of... I'm, I'm curious, because maybe people know that I don't always tell the guests what they're going to be on about, and I did not tell James what we're going to be talking about. Is this a... You heard of these folks? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, first of all, uh, this is a complete surprise to me. It's a nice surprise. Um, it's like Christmas without all the problematic baggage. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I I have I um I wrote a decent amount about like uh, this chapter in my dissertation about how uh a, how the popular front you want to call it the popular front right like how anti-fascist mm -hmm. organizing tried to reimagine education in an anti-fascist way uh, and how anarchist sports groups specifically tried to build physical education mm -hmm. into education because they were really bummed that working class kids kept dying of tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. Or like engaging in child labor and then coming out like people can't see me because this is an audio medium, but <laughs> they come out like stunted or uh, otherwise physically disabled um, from working in factories from a young age or drowning. Big, big thing with teaching uh, working class kids to swim. Uh, so huh. I'm f familiar with that. And then uh, I do the history of, of like anti-fascist sports. So uh British 19th century education and ideas of like muscular Christianity and uh, like using education to create young officers for the empire, using sport within the yeah. education to like do violence, but stick to the rules and do as you're told. Like that, that's why sport exists and why we took play and made it into sport. Those are different things, right? Sport has rules, play doesn't. And uh, it, so I'm very familiar with the discourse on like, uh, uh, Robert Arnold and the rugby school and muscular Christianity. But I'm excited okay. about this. Awesome. Yeah, no, this is good. You'll have, I, I was thinking I was excited to have you as the guest for this one. So we're going to lay our scene. Okay, wait, no, I'm not. I keep thinking about the play sport thing. Um, did did you grow up reading yeah. Calvin and Hobbes? No. Okay. I don't know. This is an American thing. There's this thing called Calvin ball that they play. Okay. And Calvin plays Calvin Ball, and it Calvin Ball has rules. The rules change whenever you want them to, constantly. Um, and it is just the most fun game. You just go out and with a ball and your friends, and you make up new rules as you go. And 
everyone's like, no, but that's a touchdown. Like, no, it's a, I don't know enough <laughs> about sports to even fake this right now. Um, <laughs> Home run, touchdown. They're all listening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, well, uh, one of our fr- uh, friend Daniel, our mutual friend Daniel, like mm-hmm. went to Italy recently and discovered some of these folk football traditions, which uh, it's funny, like every couple of years they'll pop up on Twitter and, and they'll be like, look at this crazy historical shit where people like uh, play this ancient form of a game and like football, right? Like a, what you guys call soccer. Um, <laughs> we What we used to call soccer, right? Um, actually, because oh, really? it, oh. yeah, it's a contraction of association football. So ASOC is a contraction of association. Are you serious? I yeah. Have no idea about this. Yes, because it, it's it's football with rules uh, as opposed oh, to shit. folk football where like you can find all these where like two villages would have a competition, right? And they'd have inflate a pig's bladder mm-hmm. and it's like you get the pig's bladder into the opposing village, you score a point or you win the game. And like, mm-hmm. you know, stabbing is frowned upon. <laughs> oh. uh, like, 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 you know, it's really not completely like gentlemanly to use like bows and arrows or ranged weapons but other than that you fucking send it like you get the ball over you pick it up you kick it you do what you need to do like and that these are the like these are the play routes which uh-huh. long predate sport right but then yeah. uh british imperialism takes that and is like no we need to make young men obey the rules so they can go to other countries and do colonialism and from there, we get sport and we get the rules and we get this French aristocrat called Pierre de Coubertin who codifies a lot of these things in the Olympics. And, okay. And then we continue to use that to reinforce like fascism, right? Like we're doing right now in Italy and like we did in 1936 and it's great yeah. and there's no problems with it. Yeah, no, everything is going great. That is what um, people say about the world right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, nice and toasty, uh, the world right now and getting toastier. Where it's just cozy is what everyone wants. Um, yeah, anyone who's listening, if you listen to my Spanish Civil War episode did with Jamie Loftus, all of the stuff about the anti-fascist Olympics came from James uh, James's dissertation that they sent me before um, while I was working on that episode. So all of that stuff is going to come up a lot, and I'm really excited about. It, but I didn't know any of that shit. But like this concept of like play and and things like that is related to education, and so. We're going to lay our scene in 19th century France, where a lot of it's going to start, even though it's a story about 20th century Spain later, but you know, whatever. In the late 19th century, education in France was in turmoil. On one hand, you had the Catholics. They wanted to teach without state interference. On the other hand, you had the liberals, basically, they, the secularists, and they wanted to teach without church interference, but they wanted very much state interference, right? And then you have the people who were like, well, what if we teach without state interference and without church interference? And you have this idea of popular education, which means education of the people, not like people like it or pop education. <laughs> popular has a million fucking meanings. And basically popular education was like, hey, what if the working class got to be educated too? And in Nordic countries, you get this thing called folk high school. It's really interesting to me that um, what you're talking about, about like folk football and stuff like I hate the only reason I'm mad at the Nazis is that they took the term folk and made it a bad thing. Well, I guess I'd obviously have to be mad at the Nazis for more than that if I'm mm-hmm. mad yeah, about they, uh, them taking the word in the first place. They've done some other unfortunate stuff, yeah, but that's one of the bad things. Yeah, totally. Actually, they're um, responsible for why airship travel is not popular, uh, but that is a story for another time. Yeah, they've really let us down. Um, so, <laughs> one sec. 
All right, this is a bad joke. Okay, so you have folk high schools. They start in Denmark, and except the airship thing is true, but they start in Denmark in the 1840s, not the airships, the folk high schools. And the and folk high schools were different everywhere. They actually still exist. There, but the idea was basically like fuck degrees, fuck only rich people learning shit. Let's just teach kids, and especially at first, this meant like teach kids about democracy and shit like that in a boarding school environment, um, and. It's kind of interesting because I feel like it's not reversed now, but it's a little bit different now. In the 19th century, at least in at least in the European context or the Western context or whatever, people who were obsessed with book learning and formal education were the, more of the conservatives. And progressive types at the time thought books were swell, but they cared about hands-on instruction and they cared about integrating sports. And there's this thing that we'll talk to you about more called integrated education, um, where the body and the mind are not so fucking separate. Meanwhile, in Western countries, you get leftists and Marxists and anarchists, um, especially the anarcho-syndicalists, and they're all talking about how to teach the working class. And the Republicans, again, um, not the Republican Party, but people who are like, let's not have kings anymore, they were on this too. And the third Republic in France, uh, which gets touched on in the Paris Commune episode, gets called the Republic of Teachers. France in particular, one of the main goals of the popular education movement was actually to teach people to not be anti-Semites anymore. I didn't realize this, but the, the Dreyfus affair, which we'll get to a little bit later in this, basically they were like, oh, we should probably teach people about that there's like other people in the world and that yeah. other people are people. And, uh, you know, um, so yeah, one of the goals of it. And in this environment, we get our, our first named hero for today. Uh, you get Paul Robin. You ever heard of Paul Robin? I don't think I have, no. Well, Paul Robin is a Frenchman, despite his name not mm-hmm. sounding French at all to me, but what do I know? Yeah. Uh, he was from the middle class, and he wound up being at least called by some historians or the historian that I read anyway, specifically about this, quote, the greatest socialist educator of the 19th century. And yeah, I don't know. I, I yeah. After reading this, I, I have no particular doubts that he might have been the greatest socialist educator of the 19th century. He was born in 1837 in Toulon, a Mediterranean city in France. His family was devoutly Catholic and military, and he went off to school, and once he went off to school, he was like, actually, I don't know about this stuff I was raised with. I'm going to become a free thinker. Um, Specifically, he became something known as a positivist, which I had never run across before. Have you heard of this positivism thing? I might have vaguely heard of it, but it doesn't ring any, like, I can't it have a coherent concept of what that means. Yeah, totally. And, you know, there's always like, you know, one day someone's going to look back and be like, and then they were, you know, they'll look at all the weird demarcations we have about ourselves in the early 21st century and be like, huh, they were on some weird shit. Um, <laughs> yes, I think they will. Yeah. <laughs> access to the Twitter archive will make it very clear that we are on some weird shit. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, sorry. Sometimes I think about that. Sometimes I think about like, if I was doing my dissertation, but mm-hmm. they had Twitter, like I would just be like, "Fuck!" <laughs> like, like what to do with all this? You know, like I yeah. think when they look back at our history and especially the history of the left, uh, maybe they'll be like, uh, as I don't know, maybe as bamboozled as I am when I look at the left in 1937 in Spain when they keep shooting each other, and I'm like, "Why?" Yeah, it'll be like, and then the cat boys got into a fight with the primitivists, and you're like, "What?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought they were they... all on the same side. I don't get it. No. Bedroom discourse completely. Uh, bedtime yeah. discourse <laughs> divided the left. And, uh... 
Yeah, yeah. What a good future we have to look for. No, it's all gonna. We're gonna learn from the lessons of the past. That's why we have yeah. shows like mine and shows like yours. I didn't actually introduce that you also have a podcast. You have a podcast. What is your podcast? I do. Uh, I do. It could happen here, which is a podcast where we talk about things that could happen here, or have already happened, or are already increasingly things that are already happening, which is quite disturbing. Just worth a listen. Sounds if you interesting. Want to be yeah. yeah, Sophie, do you, maybe you, uh, maybe you, you should listen. Yeah, I'll add yeah. that to the list. Yeah, yeah but put that on the schedule. I, I know you don't have much. Yeah, Sophie doesn't have much to do, so it's good to uh, yeah, things just, to fill yeah. her day with podcasts. Yeah, I need yeah. more podcasts in my life immediately. Mm-hmm. I've been not listening to as many podcasts because I haven't been. I'm, I'm on book tour, and I haven't been um, working around the house. Yeah, like cleaning and making stuff, and like painting the wall or whatever is when I. Anyway. Whatever you listen to podcasts, dear listener, I appreciate that you listen to it. Okay, positivism. And okay, so free thinkers, first of all, free thinkers are basically like, kind of like early atheists. I mean, obviously there's people who didn't believe in God going back whenever, right? But free thinking was basically like, it's a little bit less like we are atheists. And it's a little bit different than like we are agnostic and we kind of don't know. Free thinking was like, we believe that people should be able to think about this shit themselves without like just following church doctrine. Um, and a lot of them ended up atheistic and a lot of them ended up uh, essentially heretical as far as I can tell. I don't know. Um, positivism is a philosophy that holds basically shit is either true or it isn't. Science is the way that you find out if something is true or not true. It's kind of just an anti-superstition sort of thing. Yeah. If you can't prove that something is true, reject it. Uh, I'm not a positivist, but in a world ruled by the church, this sort of makes sense to me as a... Yeah. A decent step of rejection. Yeah. So our guy, Paul Robin, he's really into Darwin and he's really into not the church. He's like just not into the church at all. And he also gets into socialism. But interestingly, it was this positivism that drew him to the radical left of the left towards the anarchists or as they saw himself themselves at the time, like the Proudhonists, because he's in France at the time. And there's this yeah. whatever anyway, um, because. Marx and all... I admire your ability to, to do that. <laughs> that could have been an hour of podcasting right there. Yeah, yeah. No, I um yeah, no, I I yeah. Life is short. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to hear more about Proudhon, listen to the Paris Commune episode. So Marx and all the other socialists, they were not all the other, many of the other socialists, mm-hmm. they're into political parties and political action, like action that happens to the state is what I mean by political action as compared to direct action. Uh, but he was into direct action, and as he saw it, political action was kind of ephemeral. It was kind of superstitious. Because <laughs> the state's not real. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so fuck <laughs> okay. ephemeral things. Based. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. He's a, a fan. He scienced his way into being an anarchist. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. This rational scientific anarchism. Yeah. Uh, and he gets really excited about teaching. So when he finishes school, he becomes a teacher. Except they don't really let him do his thing in France at the time. They, can't, they won't let him teach how he wants to teach. And because mm-hmm. he wants to teach in a way that isn't academic, because academia is not very positivist by this conception, because it's <laughs> this like ephemeral ivory tower. Um, yeah, I like that. Okay. Yeah. I can identify strongly here. I'm enjoying this. Yeah. He wants to teach in a way that is practical and useful to his students, in a way that would be useful to the worker rather than to the state. Right. And he's, um, oh, yeah. And he's kind of into this idea that the, a lot of these people I'm going to be talking about are into this idea that school, kind of like you're saying about how, sport is training people to be soldiers school is teaching people to be bureaucrats is teaching people how to be like you know i would say workers but i mean like the working class isn't even going to school most of this time um, yeah 
very explicitly so, right? At the end of the uh, like a 19th century, certainly by the 19th century, like it's teaching them to be citizens in a nation. Yeah. Uh, like um, I'm sure you're familiar with peasants into Frenchmen, like the idea. No. That you take- oh, OK. I get this idea, though. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a book, but it's the idea that you take all these distinct regional identities and then through like one of the things education, other ones are like roads, trains, military mm-hmm. service. You take them from being like, oh, I I, I am Catalan, I am Breton, I'm mm-hmm. Basque, uh, whatever, wherever you're from, uh, and and turn them into French people by like, no, like all French people share this common education and they read and write French, not not Breton or Catalan or yeah, um, huh, and it make them acceptable to capitalism or make them useful cogs in, in the machine that produces stuff and, and yeah. rewards people who have money. Yeah. And so this is the stuff that Paul Robin is like, I'm, I'm not as excited about this. Um, so he, he quits. And I like this cause I've never run this across this like fuck lofty fake things like the church, the state and <laughs> academia. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I only <laughs> like science. And so he starts throwing down with the international labor movement, which is at the time mostly called in, in, in Europe, the international and he's, he throws him with the anarchists, not because he's like, I am an anarchist, right? But because they're more excited about education at that time than Marxists. Mm-hmm. They're like more willing to kind of listen to him. Yeah. Um, who, I only learned this recently, uh, the Marxists weren't getting called Marxists yet. Marxist was first used as a pejorative by the anarchists against the Marxists. <laughs> because they're like, oh, you're just listening to the secretary of the international. You just keep doing whatever yeah. he says, you damn Marxist. <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, apparently anarchists, I mean, obviously they got some of their name by calling themselves anarchists earlier, but uh, mm-hmm. they started like really getting called the anarchists as a pejorative yeah. by the Marxists. <laughs> yeah, certainly like when you look at, uh, like when you look at Spain, right? It's still a phrase yeah. I like to use actually, uh, a phrase I wasn't allowed to use mm-hmm. in my dissertation, which was a, it's another topic, that they call themselves the libertarian left. Yeah. And uh, that fits like, and it also like, it avoids the like uh, giant clusterfuck of identities that exist within the broad sphere of anarchism. Yeah, right? like uh, totally different diagonal flags. Yeah, yeah, which is part of the reason I'm sad we lost the word libertarian, and at least in the United States context, because yeah, I'm yeah. like, I like take that it more. Yeah, we um, can take it back. I think it's a really good way to appeal to people. So I'm, I'm diverting the fuck, <laughs> uh, and like I spend a lot of time in rural areas here mm-hmm. and grew up in a rural area and like uh i was i've been to the tenacious unicorn ranch specifically a couple of times and we've mm-hmm. spoken about this how like most people in rural areas do a whole lot of anarchist shit but would hate the label anarchist but like i think like left libertarian is where we can sometimes meet those people yeah like you you want to have guns and if your neighbor's truck falls in the ditch you you pull it out for them like yeah actually friend you're doing anarchism yeah like, just totally you know and uh, y- you know who else will pull you out of a ditch? Um, will they? Sophie? No. W- one thing that uh, sponsors Sophie's... tend not to have is tow trucks. Yeah. I, huh. I, mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah, I, I don't think if so. If you buy enough of their products or services, they could buy like a big truck, one of those ones with four wheels in the back. And then, yeah, then they can so buy things. What if AAA is our sponsor today? Oh, snap. Never. Mm-hmm. That would be. That would what be. Mm-hmm. One of the A stands for anarchist. Yeah, oh. totally. Uh, anarchist they, automobile association. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't like traffic lights. Traffic lights are a restriction on personal freedom. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, here's some advertisers. Bean Dad, the dress. 
30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Okay, we are back, and we are talking about how the Marxists and the anarchists... Man, you're like, oh, God, I'm so glad I'm listening to a podcast this time on the fucking international and the Marxists and the anarchists when they split. But one of the things <laughs> I think was, like, really interesting that came out of that for me is that, you know, Marx's, idea, Marx, Marx's ideas became the dominant ones because he was the guy writing everything down. So not only is history written by the victors, but um, would-be victors might want to write the history. <laughs> it's my theory. Yeah. Paul Robin. He's in the International. He's pushing for the liberation of education as a central plank in the International. And his other main thing is feminism on including women's work within the labor movement, which is really contentious at the time. And not just, this isn't like an anarchist versus Marxist split. This is a decent humans versus not decent humans split. And basically he's like, along with a few other people, he's like, women need equal pay, equal voice within the union. Um, Women shouldn't just be fucking servants of their husbands. And do you mean to tell me that gender is not false consciousness? Uh, hmm. I, I don't know. Maybe. Okay, sorry. Um, I think, <laughs> I think, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say that the, uh, the struggle for women's liberation is part of the struggle for class liberation. Yeah. And okay, one of the reasons I really like Paul Robin and the way he's talking about all this, he's really down for the labor movement, but he didn't want like a lot of other people, including some people I'll talk about today, he wasn't like, we want education so that the labor movement will be strong. He was like, I want a labor movement so that workers have enough free time to participate meaningfully in their own education. Oh, cool. Like the three-eighths thing? Uh, the three-eighths thing? Oh, yeah. So the, the, certainly the Spanish anarchists had this mm-hmm. thing, the three-eighths, right? Eight hours for work, eight hours for education, self-improvement and leisure, and eight hours for sleep. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, and he's just like, 
I love it because he's, he's education first, you know? And it's the same with women's rights. It wasn't so that women could join the labor movement. He wanted a labor movement so that there would be women's rights because women were also yeah. workers. And so he was like, well, this is what I want. The labor movement is how to get it. Um, and that nice. is, as someone who doesn't like working, well, actually, I, I like working for myself. I don't like working for other people. But anyway, I like this about him. And so he's doing this work mostly in Brussels in the late 1860s. He gets married and um, the male historian, I read about this, so I'm not going to call out by name, but included <laughs> his wife's dad's name because his wife's dad was famous <laughs> and did not include his fucking wife's name. No! Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of, the left yeah. needs to learn some shit yeah. about women's yeah, I rights. I was going to say, magnificent <laughs> bro-leftism. Yeah. After yeah. it was like paragraphs of being like, and he fought for women's rights. Isn't that interesting? Okay, and by the late 1860s, coal workers are striking across uh, Belgium and northern France. And the state did what the state would do. Uh, give them my, nice things, help the work. No, the um, the state fucked the workers up and like shot a bunch of people and arrested a bunch of people and did all of its fucking usual bullshit. Really? Yeah. No, I know. It's um, a yeah, big break from the norms for them. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know. I'm starting to notice a pattern mm-hmm, with states and violence. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like yeah. even pro-state people define a state as the monopoly of the legitimate use of force. Yeah, hmm. I wonder if we should investigate that further or just accept it. No, no, no. Yeah, no, accept it, move on. So, Paul Robin, he signs a a letter of protest against police brutality. And, um... (laughs) Sorry, that's great. What what year was this? Because how long have we been trying that shit? Yeah, well, what's interesting (laughs) is back then... Yeah, I know, right? This is the the 1860s, late 1860s. He's like, hey, maybe police brutality is bad. But... Mm Did an op-ed and it fixed it, right? Well, no, instead they arrested him and and deported him from Pelham oh, shit. for writing a fucking signing a letter yeah. against police wow. brutality. Yeah. I think Deported about it from the great state of Belgium too. I know. Right. Um, uh, yeah. There's really good fries there. Uh, mm-hmm. Good chocolate. Good bike racing. And so shit weather. <laughs> the beer is good. I think about this whenever I think like I get asked to sign my name to public letters and I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it if I agree. But people act Maybe unfairly, maybe I'm being mean to public letters, but they act like this is this like great thing where everyone's coming <laughs> together to sign this public letter. And I'm like, it, yep. it is no skin off of my back to write some public letter against pu- police brutality right now. Like it, it, yeah. it will not affect my life in any negative way. Whereas in the 1860s, <laughs> yeah. you get fucking yeah. deported. Yeah, amazing. He doesn't really like France where he's from, so he fucks off to Switzerland for a while and then he goes back to France because mm-hmm. it's 1870 and France in 1870 is getting spicy. This is the year before the alumni of the podcast the Paris Commune and Republicans and socialists and shit are like, "Oh, let's like overthrow the government. Doesn't that sound fun?" And they're like, "Yeah, I I would overthrow the government with you." And they're like, "Well, okay." And they like, you know, get engaged to overthrow the government together and we all have left unity ever since. Um if you want to hear all more right, about okay. that, there's a whole episode about it. The French government though, they actually don't want to be overthrown cowards yeah no and i know and so paul robin and 37 other people get arrested for conspiracy and for writing a book full of like neat ciphers and instructions on how to make nitroglycerin <laughs> it's like they're like <laughs> amazing it's the like this secret is the education book. yeah yeah the anarchist cookbook of the uh 19th century yeah and i think paul robin actually didn't have anything to do with this book but his name is in it there's a cipher for his name written into the book Oh, that sucks. I know. He just gets railroaded. <laughs> if you're going to go down for the nitroglycerin book, at least write the nitroglycerin book. Right? 
Yeah. But at least people were talking about him by cool code names. I would love to get a mm-hmm. copy of that and find out what his cool code name was. Yeah. Okay, so really after that, though, the government realized it didn't have a choice in whether or not it was going to get overthrown because uh, their Napoleon guy, uh, who was also named Napoleon, he gets captured yeah. and the empire falls and the Republicans, the Republic starts and Paul Robin gets let out of prison. So um, if you nice. get arrested for trying to overthrow the government, you should hope that your friends are like really working on it out there. <laughs> yeah. He gets out of prison and he's like, you know what? I miss my family in Belgium. And he goes back to Belgium. Okay. Uh, Belgium is like, we actually don't want you either. So he gets arrested and deported again back to France. <laughs> Just in time, Paris Commune doesn't even hit yet. He gets back in, this is all like in one fucking year. He gets wow. back in time to set up one of the precursor communes, the Paris Commune, where they take, there was like several different cities that took over themselves and declared yeah. an independent city state that just usually lasted a couple of days. His was yeah. in the city Brest, which I don't know how to pronounce and I should have looked up before I started talking. Yeah, I think that's it because it's a bike race there. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all right. This is how I know any, this is my entire engagement (laughs) with with, with most of France, specifically just like living in my car, racing bikes. That's awesome. So then it falls, right? And he goes back into fucking exile. Uh, So this guy cannot catch a break. And this time he goes, go ahead. Where's he going? Yeah, where's he going now? He gets on a boat to London. Have you ever heard of the town called London? Yeah, interesting choice for him because uh, he's gone French-speaking places so far and I'm sure he'll encounter no xenophobia in London. Yeah, no, I, I assume not. No, <laughs> and, most people. And then he gets to, he gets there just as the fucking Paris Commune starts and so he has to sit there in FOMO and survivor's guilt. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. As, the, as his like people trying to live the same dream as him take over the largest city in Europe and declare it a free place and like everyone sets up all these educational programs and does all this shit. Um, and it, it, and this basically like sets up all of the modern Western ideas about how to have a cool revolution. Um, unlike the sort of less cool mm-hmm. revolutions where you just put capitalists in charge. Okay. So meanwhile, all this fucking weird infighting is happening instead of the, the, the lovely union of all the different revolutionary parties is starting to, starting to break up. They're, they're no longer as enamored with each other. The international, um, Marx basically takes control of the international and he commits it to a single political goal instead of a broader coalition. And so when he declares that it is now a singular political goal and everyone has to agree with all of the things. Uh, Marx personally kicked Paul Robin out even before he kicked out the anarchists. Shortly after, yeah, yeah. Shortly thereafter, he kicks out the anarchists more broadly and the international fell apart because it actually worked better as a coalition. Whoops. Anyway, Paul Robin, he's an anarchist in that he doesn't like state or capitalism, but he doesn't actually really like the other anarchists. And I think he's still pretty bitter about this like book that got him fucking thrown in prison. And he doesn't like how conspiratorial and shit all the other anarchists he knew were because he just wanted to like teach people, right? Yeah. So above all, he's an education guy, a women's rights guy, and a, a positivist, a scientist. And so, and it was those ideas that led him to his political beliefs, right? So he goes back to his real love teaching, teaching and organizing ed- educational systems because it's not just enough to be a teacher for him. He's also just thinking about pedagogy more, more broadly. And France at this point has swung secular, right? It's no longer as much ruled by the church. And the Third Republic, it's doing its thing. And and so part of its thing is a free, obligatory, and secular education, which is a, a fucking step up, right? Even if it's like, hey, here's how we peasants into Frenchmen or whatever, it's yeah. still a step up from what the <laughs> fucking Catholics, the monarchs were yeah. doing. And this Protestant pacifist and anti-anti-Semite guy was in charge of primary education. So he hooks Paul Robin up with a job. It's like, hey, you're you're like a cool lefty pedagogy guy. 
Here's a job. 1880, he gets him put in charge of an orphanage, the, the provost orphanage. And at very least, he's in charge of the school at the orphanage. I think he's in charge of the entire orphanage itself. And this is where he starts doing his most influential work. He's already been like part of numerous revolutions and like deported uh, three or four times or whatever the fuck, right? But taking over this orphanage and teaching kids is his influential work that changed the world. Most of the other pedagogical thinkers at the time remained thinkers and were just writing about these ideas. Like, wouldn't it be great if we did this? And he's like, well, <laughs> I got a job, but now I'm doing this. And he was really fucking good at administrating a school and teaching. And he was in charge of hundreds of students. Uh, it was 48 when he first started. And by the end, the time he left in 1894, 14 years later, it's 180 students at a time at this university. Oh, wow. And he believed in integrated education. And this is actually, I'm kind of kind of curious your thoughts about how this, yeah. how this works. It's an education that is both intellectual and practical for people from all classes. The upper classes need to get their hands dirty. The working classes need an opportunity to exercise their intellectual capacity. Uh, and, and learning is a lifelong pursuit. He, he wants, he gives his kids diplomas because he needs, they need them in the world they're in. He's right. not that much of an ideological asshole. But he, um, unlike some of the people I'll get to later, but whatever. Uh, he wants a world without diplomas where because you're never done learning. Um, yeah. And yeah, he still gave his kids diplomas. But, and everything is taught alongside practical education and also sports and like, like physical education. Um, nice. Which I, I don't know. I'm like... Yeah, I'm interested to hear mm -hmm. what like, uh, did they do sports or physical culture? Like, because mm -hmm. there's this whole movement around this time um like the Sokol movement um it, it means falcon mm -hmm. in check in check but like it's like a a physical culture movement that isn't necessarily sport but the idea is that it's part of a complete education to shape better citizens in a democracy to create it was it was very um it was big in catalonia in the uh in the 1930s mm -hmm. it, it, it sort of grew out of this czech thing but Popping up all over Europe, you had these like physical culture things that weren't quite sport, and like sometimes they were very disciplined, like German turnen. Of course, the Germans are. Uh huh. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Germans have uh, developed like an authoritarian yeah. form of gymnastics, basically, <laughs> fash, uh, fash dancing. Uh, <laughs> it's a fash flash dancer. Uh huh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's fash flash dance. It's a horrible image. Uh, yeah, so I'd be interested to know what kind of physical culture or sport that he kind of pursued. Do you know? I don't totally know. Um, the stuff I'm reading like doesn't get as much into it besides talking about how like how sport was included. Everything that you're saying about the rest of it does make me think that it might be more of this physical culture stuff, but I couldn't... Mm -hmm. But that's a little bit me being like, oh yeah, no, he did the cool thing because he's a cool person, did cool <laughs> stuff. Yeah. You know? I see he did that. Um, yeah, no, yeah. thanks, yeah. So I'm, I'm not totally sure. There were definitely anarchists who did competitive sport mm -hmm. as well. Uh, like certainly by the time you get to popular sport in Spain in the 1930s, you have anarchists participating in competitive sport. But okay. The end is always like, a, like when we look at the popular Olympics, right? The end goal is not to reward uh, people who are born with particular physical excellence so right. much as to improve the well-being of the working class. Yeah, and, and that is absolutely one of his whole things is he's not really big into competition and he's like specifically into like helping each individual kid develop their interests and their strengths and like shore up their weaknesses and shit right like that is like yeah. more than the the integrated education it's like yeah okay it's like 
both practical and heady or intellectual or whatever, but it's, it's even more than that. It's like, it's not just like personalized, like from the outside. It's like from, well, I'll just, I'll just keep talking about what I did. So everything is taught alongside practical education. There's travel memoirs and personal accounts instead of most of the history books, right? Because they're like, oh, this is a way to tie the history into something, which might be familiar to listeners of this show. (laughs) Uh, Boys and girls were educated in the same class. And this is like a big part of what all of the radical, like, you know, people getting killed for their political educational beliefs Mm. were like, boys and girls should be taught in the same class. Um, And it's both to ensure that they receive the same education but also, and this is really interesting to me, I didn't, I, I had only ever heard the like, oh, this is so that, you know, girls get the same education as boys or whatever, right? But part of it for him was that he believed that boys, by making friends with and interacting with girls, would be, would actually understand girls and like, less think of them as this other that they would then mistreat, right? Yeah, they um, don't become incels. Yeah, basically. And <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, and, and that, or, or even like, yeah. happily fucking, but like, only hanging out with the boys and treating women like objects. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, you don't create this separate spheres kind of gender world. Yeah. And so boys would learn cooking and sewing and they helped in the laundry and everyone gets sex education, um, which I believe included a lot of birth control talk because that's like something I'll get into about his whole thing later. And okay, the most contentious thing he did, uh, certainly to his own yeah. kids, the most contentious thing he did, he put his kids in the orphanage. <laughs> amazing yeah i think that's great yeah he's like committed to this being like he's doing as he would want done kind of thing yeah exactly um and it, it at least the one report i've read made it this made his kids kind of unhappy but it uh it made all the other kids very happy that they were like oh this person <laughs> actually cares about us we are actually being right. treated like we are his kids i fair if i was his kid i might be better too but i also think it's cool <laughs> yeah, that yeah. he did it yeah yeah, he's taking a stand against the tyranny yeah. of the family. Yeah. And one of the most interesting things about him, I think, is that he's not writing his own, look how great I am, right? Because all of the stuff he writes is like, here's how teaching works. And also all of this, like, well, I'll get into it, almost a creepy level of science. Very explicit. Whatever. He, like, <laughs> he tracks everything about kids because he's a scientist in this, right. this way that I'll get into in a minute. But but we, it's not him being like, I am the best and this is the best way to teach. Instead... Everything we have about him was his kids' writing, his his orphans' writing. His biographer was someone who came up and was educated under him in this school. And like a lot of the people who carried on his work were people who were educated in cool. this system. Yeah. Um, and the stuff we know about how the school itself ran, we know because the kids ran their own newspaper as part of their practical education about the going-ons of the school and what was working and what wasn't working about the educational system. Um, that's pretty cool so that's this is why i don't suspect uh anything unforetold so so his main pedagogical problem that he was running into which is basically the problem that faces everyone teaching anyone anything and i'm actually kind of curious because your experience of this is some, as a teacher is basically it's like how do you teach other people to be free like how do you force other people <laughs> yeah. to be like no you're free now whether you like yeah. it or not you know yeah that's a rough one isn't it i think you just teach people and hope that they realize that themselves but yeah totally it's a little different when you're running an orphanage. Like, I have not been in that position. I've worked oh, volunteered at an you... orphanage before. Oh, really? Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, um, it was a transformative experience for little me. Yeah. But, uh, I volunteered an orphanage for children with autism uh, in Romania uh, okay. when I was, like, a teenager. 
in Dostoevsky, they had this thing about like increasing their productive capacity as a nation by people having more children, and they'd reward childbearing, okay, uh, or the child having, uh, and it's resulted in a culture in which, uh, from what this is me going off what I was taught when I was sixteen, so I might mm-hmm. be way off base, but uh, they have a higher number of of children who aren't living with their families for whatever reason than than would normally be the case in a country of that size, and especially yeah. children with things like autism, so. Yeah, we're doing a little volunteering there when I was like a teenager. It was one of my first like, holy shit, like, you know, experiences of what like life is like for people who are not as fortunate as me. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. But you know what else makes a lot of sense, James? Mm-hmm. Is that buying things? Yeah, um, we live yeah. in a system well, uh, that rewards you for. No, go ahead. Yeah, well, uh, advertisers, do you think, abandon their children to an institution which may or may not harm those children? Well, I think I like to think that it's the these it's, these advertisers believe in their products so much that they subject their children to them. Okay, so so like if there was a uh, a AAA mm-hmm. uh, orphanage where AAA would raise your children as anarchist automobile people, yeah. they would they would gra- gladly let their children live and thrive there. Well, it's actually um, it's. Uh... You were right about it's 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 anarchist automobiles. It, it's actually um, it's a kind of a transformers thing. Um, mm-hmm. We we turn children into. No, I can't do that. That's just a, yeah. not the direction yeah, I want to no. take this show. All right, that's how we get away from the fossil fuel economy. There's only one way. <laughs> yeah, one child per wheel treadmill. Yeah, uh, let's go. Well, if you want to participate in the economy that you're forced to participate in, you can do so by listening to these ads. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. 
When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. We are back and we are talking about Paul Robin and not how he did not turn any of his children into automobiles. As far as I'm aware, this wasn't an island of Dr. Moreau, uh, Ford, Dr. Ford Moreau Island thing. He did away with exams. This part, I'm okay. Now I'm back to telling the truth instead of the bad joke that didn't work. So he did away with exams and he didn't use discipline and he worked to have each student direct their own education. He provided tools and he tried to create a structure by which students could learn. And the school taught folk dancing and they would spend like two months of the year at the seaside doing like natural observations, but also just fucking hanging out at the water and shit. And this is the part that feels creepy. He uh, he's really into science, right? So he oh no he measured all of his pupils, uh, their their growth, every part of their body, the angles of their faces oh as they changed with growth. The comp- oh no the he would like like record their stool composition, like when they pooped. Um, wow, living laboratory kind of shit. I, again, I don't think that I like. I kind of looked into it. I, I tried to find out a little bit because I'm like every time you hear about something that's like seems really cool, sometimes there's like oh, and then there was like rampant child abuse or something i don't think that that was happening i think that this was like 19th century science guy being like one day the world will need to know whether this french kid's cheekbones were at this angle at this age versus this other age where they were at this other angle or whatever i can see like i don't have children but like i'm sure that there's an anxiety of like is my kid normal like yeah uh, yeah, every little thing about your child. Maybe if you could just look in his book and be like, yeah, that poop is within the standard deviation. That's true. Yeah, maybe he wrote a book about like, is your kid poop okay? Kids poop okay? Yeah. Um, wouldn't be the first. Yeah. I might, he might be the first. He wouldn't be the last. <laughs> <laughs> and so, the, okay. So, and there are some rules within the thing, right? It's uh, no one's allowed to play soldiers because he doesn't want to turn it into like a militarism thing. No one's allowed to sing the national anthem. Oh, yes. <laughs> And and there's no religious teachings for or against God. God is just not to be discussed in school. That is up to people's <laughs> own fucking thing. That's great. Yeah, no, totally. Because like, yeah. I think it'd probably be like not the best to like have a school where you're like, and this is why God is fake, you know? Because yeah, you're just gonna. And also, why introduce the idea if if you if you don't believe it's rational or, or useful? Why waste time on it? Like, yeah. Yeah, totally. You only have so long. Yeah, and I, yeah, I really like you know some of the some of these folks we're going to talk about. There's kind of a spectrum in how much they were trying to kind of indoctrinate kids versus like just free minds and see what will happen, you know. And I think he's more yeah. on the just free minds and see what will happen. Yeah, page. it seems like it. Um, yeah, and he's such a radical outlier that this he doesn't immediately influence other folks in France. This doesn't like cause this like wave of like oh everyone be like this orphanage, right? Uh, but Educators from countries all over the world come and like study and like see what's up and like kind of pay attention to what's happening at this school, which allows further influence a lot further down the yeah. line. Um, and the church kept trying to shut him down, of course, uh, because I mean, after all, he did let boys and girls swim together. Um, and they they almost shut him down in 1892 because while he was in London, he'd written a bunch of manuals about birth control. And in 1892, the church or whoever fucking busybodies like unearth them and are like, aha, 
we found it. He <laughs> wants people to be able to control whether or not they have children, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Terrible, terrible stuff. Yeah. But the the government actually kind of has his back a little bit and they, they don't kick him out. There's this whole campaign to get him kicked nice. out. Until two years later, when a more centrist government comes into power uh, and they start passing all these anti-anarchist laws. And I'll talk about the reasons why they're passing anti-anarchist laws. It'll seem a little bit less weird yeah, that they're yeah. passing anti-anarchist laws in a little bit. This is why we have the word libertarian, by the way. I mean, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. People, because at the time there were specific laws that like one of the censorship things was saying anarchist in the press. Uh-huh. Right, like the word itself. Uh, would, would have been censored or would have been grounds for like uh, like having your publication shut down or whatever. So they, they started to use the word libertarian. Okay. Uh, which then came to the United States and got fucking hijacked and, and, and yeah. ruined. But uh, yeah, the, like the initial use of, of uh, libertarian was by French anarchists in the late 19th century to avoid like censorship ah. and state control. Okay, which are these specific laws that I'll talk about a little bit more in a, one of the other stories that is going to be on this week's episode. 1894, you got this more centrist government and they want to show that they're not radical leftists, you know, so they caved to the church and his experiment in popular education comes to an end. He's forced to retire. He's given a pension. So it's like, it's better than it could have been. It's better than it's going to be for some of the other people. And, and actually the school continues without him. I think that it's, I found, I, I had a hard time finding out the history after he left about whether his educational methods were continued. I believe that the school was continued by two of his pupils, um, but I don't know how long. This is actually one of the things that really bothers me. And I, I play into it a little bit that I'm like telling you the biography about this great guy, right? Um, but the reason that we don't fucking know more about the goddamn orphanage is because people only care about it because of Paul Robin. Whereas like I care about it. I mean, Paul Robin's great, but like I want to know what happened to the orphanage. I want to know what happened to the kids, you know? But I don't know. It seemed to have continue at least for a little while. And he's forced to resign. Um Someone at the time put it in a in a journal in the U.S. Someone put it. He was fired because he refused to teach the orphans that France is bigger than the world or that God is bigger than man. So, of course, he retired and stopped being... You know, go ahead. No, this is just like, I really love that yeah. summation. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Things that... Yeah. 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 <laughs> Especially the first part. It's yeah. like, that's one that hasn't been taught enough. Yeah. So he just stopped being cool forevermore. Um, just kidding. He... Uh, he spent the rest of his life teaching birth control because he believed that a poor woman's right. right to family planning was the key to their emancipation, both as women and a class. Because he's a fucking cool yeah. guy. Yeah. Not all of his peers were as based as him, and they would like complain that he had abandoned, quote, the revolution in order to pursue raising orphans to think for themselves and providing women the <laughs> means by which to control their bodies and lives. Yeah. Um, right. So fuck them. That's not what the revolution is. Yeah. And, yeah. and then. He's 75 years old. It's 1912. And has a really good run for back in the days of tuberculosis. Oh, yeah. And he's like, you know what? I'm on my way out. So he poisoned himself. And because he was a, oh. a positivist scientist weirdo at heart, he recorded all of the effects of the poison on himself <laughs> oh, as he died wow. in case they were of any use to anyone later. Yeah, he's really in it to win it. Like that guy believes in what he's saying yeah he puts his kids into the orphanage he fucking records his own death um yeah so he's just like noting right he's like <laughs> like choking away and all yeah yeah he's like 
30 second spasm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, the writing just gets worse and worse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like that money had a weapon with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so, what a guy. I know. And there's, there's one more for today. Okay. I'm going to give you one more. Because mm-hmm. uh, he, he leaves a legacy. The French state makes him, forces him to put down the torch, but others pick it up. And before I talk about who picked up the torch, I got to talk about the anarchist outrages that were fueling the repression that got Paul Robin fired. Let's do it. Which means I've got to talk about some bombers. <laughs> I'm, they're not my favorite thing about, like, I'm not super into the anarchist bomber thing. It's not my favorite part of anarchy. But what the movement was up to in 1890s France was, was bombing people. And I want to talk about one of the more interesting ones, uh, Ravishol. And he was this guy... Ravishol, he was he was born super down and out, and he stayed that way the rest of his life. His dad fucked off when he was eight, so he was left to support his mother, his sister, his brother, and his nephew as this, like, I don't know, fucking eight-year-old, right? And so he did what he did throughout the rest of his entire life. He worked odd jobs. He played accordion on the, um, I think actually at parlors, he played accordion. At, okay. And, yeah. he, and he robbed graves. Uh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, it was very French until then. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I'm like, she's sweet puffer. Now he's just, just a French goth. Um, yeah, 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 true. Yeah. Just the amazing, like, I'm extremely poor. I need to support my family. I'll pick up my accordion and bootstrap myself. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. And then if, I, if that doesn't work, I'll go find someone else's who got buried with their accordion and get that one. Yeah, I do like that. Why not rub graves? They don't need that stuff. Yeah, I don't know. It's I mean, a victimless like, crime. Yeah, um, you heard it here first. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, and- uh, that's our next ad plug, actually. <laughs> Metal detectors. Tired, down, down and out, needs some money. You know who doesn't need it anymore? The dead. Dead. Um, it Interest totally won't going upset up. entire families. It might not affect anyone's religious practice. Okay, there's downsides. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Okay. The queen's been buried recently. Just You could just go in that's after true. that. Yeah, I think actually, if you turn in the the queen's body, um, you get all of her money. Okay, it's like yeah. a bounty bounty situation. Yeah, mm-hmm. wanted dead or alive. Where where well, do you actually, have to no, turn it's it a, in? It's a weekend at Bernie's situation. Oh, okay, oh, okay, right, right, yeah. Like, okay. hello, I am the queen. You got to do it in the crass voice. <laughs> yeah. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> um, and then you get all, all right. of her realm as well. You uh, you get to control a large part of the world. Yeah. Uh, that's true. Sophie is really excited about this bit and is like really excited that Margaret has gone down the path of strange bits about. No, I just appreciated that you did an accent. You never do that for oh, me. That's true. You never well, I can give only me do- that joy. <laughs> <laughs> I can only do it when I'm imitating Crass. <laughs> she was saving her queen bees for so long and now yeah. the opportunity is gone and she's mad. <laughs> I know. Um, okay, so Ravishal. He he takes his mother's maiden name, Ravishol, uh, because his dad sucked. And then he went through his life with only one name, which is objectively cool. Mm-hmm. Like Prince and, or Madonna? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. He starts hanging out with the anarchists and they're fighting for the eight-hour workday. Uh, and at one point, and this is the thing that's like worth noting about these, like, oh, the anarchists started throwing bombs at shit. And it's like, well, because they were labor organizing and then they all kept getting murdered. So they're like having an eight-hour workday protest when the cops are like, well, what if we kill nine of you today? Right. And so and then put three people on trial. And so while these people are on trial, Ravishal, he steals dynamite from a quarry and he bombs all the government people responsible for putting these three people <laughs> on trial. 
And I'm not I, I'm not telling him he's wrong. And so he tells an informant by accident. Right. And he's like bragging about it at a bar. And he gets put on trial. Uh, the informant's house gets bombed by someone else. And Ravishol, he gets the death penalty. He sings on the way to the guillotine. What does he sing? Ah, uh, fucking! I wrote it down, but I know I don't remember it. It was like some like. Given, yeah, they should have given him his accordion. He could have gone down. It's absolutely. I chat. know. I know. Bugs on the way. I think he sang one of the songs. Oh, he sang one of the songs of the guillotine from the French Revolution. Oh yeah, what a hero! Um, yeah, and so. I don't know. He had this hardest fuck shitty life and he fought against it. He died at 32 years old. Uh, more people bomb other shit in revenge and it creates this cycle where everyone's bombing things and then in revenge and then they get executed and other people are bombing more things in revenge. And all these anti-anarchist laws get put into place. So once the anti-anarchist laws get put into place, a poor 20-year-old baker named Cesario stabs the president to death in public. And they offer him a plea deal if he snitches. And he says, Cesario is a baker, never an informer. <laughs> what a king. I know. And as he gets guillotined, he shouts out, courage, cousins, long live anarchy. <sighs> Go ahead. These people are amazing. I, I do love, I like, I don't know what happened at this time period where people just really fully inhabited the bit right to the bitter end. But yeah, <laughs> it's very inspirational. So France, this is, this is the kind of stuff that's happening that gets Paul Robin kicked yeah. out, right? So France is like, all right, anarchists aren't allowed to associate with each other anymore. That's done. No more free association, not for anarchists. And so you get, you get something called the Trial of the 30, which, um, can you guess what the Trial of the 30 was? Uh, was it some kind of uh, endurance event, maybe, that they all had to compete? In? Oh, for like 30 <laughs> hours or something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. read ahead. I yeah, read yeah. ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's on it. I'm it's really excited live. for Margaret to deliver this. Please, <laughs> please, please inform me. Yeah. 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 No, it's yeah. it's a it's a trial of 30 people. Oh, that's extremely disappointing. <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh dear. <laughs> Very literal name. Oh wow. Yeah. That's a. Uh, <sighs> oh, what a sh- what a shame. I know. Yeah. So 30 alleged anarchists are put on trial for, quote, criminal association. And it was a completely bullshit trial because at that point in anarchist France, the anarchists weren't actually very, very well organized, which was part of why they were resorting to, to bombing and stabbing and stuff, because they hadn't really recovered yet from the repression that they faced during the Paris Commune, that the whole left faced during the Paris Commune. Yeah. And they were just trying to fuck up the world that was fucking everyone over. A lot of them were. There was another half to the anarchist movement in France at the time, which is that they were just hanging out and writing literature and poetry and shit because the art scene in Paris was hella anarchist. It's like the punk scene of the 1990s, right? Where you're just like, if you're a punk, you're yeah. probably an anarchist. If you're a literary cool person in 1890s Paris, you're probably an anarchist. It's just the culture at the time. Yeah. And so the people on trial are like authors and art directors and shit. So 30 alleged anarchists are put on trial. One of them is an art critic named uh, Felix Finan or Finian the guy who coined the term neo-impressionism. And he has a really fun bit in court. They ask him, uh, are you an anarchist, Mr. Finian? I am a Burgundian born in Turin. Your police file extends to 170 pages. It is documented that you are intimate with the German terrorist Kampfmeier. The intimacy cannot have been great as I do not speak German and he does not speak French. And then the whole courtroom laughs at the prosecutor. 
It has been established that you surrounded yourself with Cohen and Ortez. One can hardly be surrounded by two persons. You need at least three. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and then they say, you are seen conferring behind, with them behind a lamppost. A lamppost is round. Can your honor tell me where behind a lamppost is? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and so amazing. I know, and, and the court fails to prove any link between them because there wasn't one, right? They like don't yeah. even speak the same language as each other, and they all get released. Um, almost all of them get released. Some of them actually get put in jail for conspiracy shit, but most of them get released. Mm-hmm. And what does all this have to do with education? You ask. You should ask. What does all this have to do with education, Margaret? Well, I'm glad you asked. One of these guys, his name is Sebastian Fauré. And in 1904, he picked up Paul Robbins' torch. He'd also been raised by Catholics. uh, And he was actually going to become a priest until he was forced to support his family, uh, which he didn't do by accordioning and grave robbing. Um, And he soon, I don't actually remember what he did, but it wasn't that. I think he was middle class. He soon wound up an anarchist. And his wife was like, oh, fuck this. I'm not dating you anymore. I was like a conservative Catholic. So he strikes out on his own and he works as an author and a speaker. Oh, that's what he did. Right. And he works tirelessly on the Dreyfus support campaign, defending this guy, Alfred Dreyfus, alongside all of the decent human beings in France, including most all of the left. The super cliff notes (laughs) version for anyone who the Dreyfus affair. I feel like the Dreyfus affair when I first heard about it, I was like, isn't this some movie from the nineties? I don't remember it. Right. Yeah. It could be a punk band. Yeah, totally. What happened was there's this guy named Alfred Dreyfus and he was a French soldier. He was a captain and he was falsely accused of treason and it, he was accused for treason because he was Jewish. That's like pretty much all there was. Like some treason happened and it wasn't him and there was no evidence, but he was Jewish. So yeah, he spent like 12 years trying to get exonerated. It became this huge international support campaign. Um, and he was uh, like the people who were against him they were pretty clear about their anti-Semitism. They ran organizations with titles like the Anti-Semitic League of France. <laughs> yeah, so, stealthy. So, I know. So Foray, uh, along, he's part of the Dreyfus campaign, and, and eventually he leases a 50-ish acre farm outside of Paris, and he establishes a school and commune called La Rouche, or The Hive, which is a creepy name for anything. Uh, but they raised bees and sold them through a workers collective to fund the whole thing. So I will forgive them for picking a weird, creepy name. The rest of the money came from Sebastian himself, uh, from his income, from lectures and books. And which I think is just like a cool way to be like, I don't know if you're like making your living as a lecturer and author, <laughs> use that to support, <laughs> support uh, uh, schools. Yeah, that's great. Uh, what a pivot. We could have been a priest, could have lost this all. But... I know, I know. And then he could have been a prisoner because he was in the trial of the 30th. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so they start a school. Uh, educational materials and equipment come from Paul Robbins' previous school, which makes me think that maybe it was oh. closed eventually. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Or whether Paul Robbins was like, oh, you can have some of this stuff, right? I'm, I don't totally know. Yeah. At the Hive, there's a farmhouse, an orchard, woods, and meadows, and a farmland. And the whole thing has this like... Yeah, it is this anarcho-pacifist vibe. And the government at first is like, all right, well, we're not going to fuck with you because thank God we have some pacifist anarchists after like, <laughs> you know, yeah. like one of them had just like knifed their yeah. main guy. Um, they became less excited about pacifists once World War I kicked off. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, the hive lasted for 13 years until 1917 when Foray's personal finances <laughs> suffered and he couldn't afford it anymore. 
Uh, basically, the World War I fucked it all up. And the whole thing was run as a Soviet, which uh, means commune, not part of the Soviet Union. Yeah. And decisions were made at a weekly general assembly by the staff and by the older students, which I believe included anyone yeah. over the age of 13. Amazing. Yeah. This place. Yeah, it's very cool. This is actually <laughs> the most excited I've ever been about. Like, whenever I read these things about, like, and then all these radicals had their, like, back to the land thing where they got, like, 50 acres in a meadow and they, like, sold uh, whatever honey. Yeah. I'm like, and then it all ended horrible in some polydrama and someone probably stabbed someone. Like, you know, it's like, like, I think that sticking our heads in the sand is like usually a really bad thing, right? And I think that the yeah. thing that really excites me about this is that they didn't. Instead, they were like, yeah. we are a project that is part of the larger world that yeah. makes use of this idyllic landscape, right? Um, I, I haven't found anything negative about this. This is like the most like just pure, positive, like this place was just cool as far as I can tell. Yeah, it seems really cool. And the, the teachers and the staff were volunteer. They were given food and lodgings and, of course, an equal voice in how things were run, right? Yeah. And they could use money from the communal pool for anything that they needed, and they didn't need to justify their expenses. Um, and by all accounts, no one took advantage of that system and abused it. There were oh, yeah. about 50 students at any given point, aged 5 to 16. It was really competitive to get in, and the only favoritism was shown was towards the kids of all these executed anarchists. So, like, <laughs> if you get executed by the state, at least your kids get a free education at the hive. Yeah. And tuition was pay what you can without any emphasis in selection based on who had money. Uh, the school, aggressively, it did not teach anarchy. It taught autonomy. It taught students. It, it taught them what they wanted to learn and really intentionally avoided indoctrination into anarchism. And it was a, an integrated education like Paul Robbins' orphanage and that practical school skills and the headier subjects were both emphasized students started an apprenticeship at 13 and whatever skill they wanted um basically uh, up until you're 10 you do whatever you want and no one's allowed to tell you what you have to learn um from 10 to 13 or maybe 10 to 12 you like get the basics of a ton of different fields and then at 13 you pick an apprenticeship and you start doing labor for the farm as that apprenticeship and you get a wage for the things that you make that get sold by the cooperative. So I think the only people who got paid by this school were the students. The students. Wow. Um, and everyone is encouraged yeah. to learn everything. Boys and girls taught, uh, were taught together. There's sex education. There's no punishments. There's no rewards, but the reward of learning. Um, students travel internationally. Like their field trips are like, let's go to fucking Russia or whatever. I, I, Switzerland's <laughs> the only one I know off the top of my head. But, um, and international visitors come to see the place and, I, I don't know. And it, I keep reading. I'm like waiting. I'm like, and when did it go off the rails? When did it go off the rails? It yeah. didn't. It just, it ran out of money because of World War One, which like almost nothing fucking survived World War One. Lots of people did not yeah. survive World War One. Yeah. Some countries didn't probably survive World War yeah. One. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this is not the most famous torchbearer of Paul Robbins' work. When we come back on Wednesday, we'll talk about Francisco Ferrer, the, the martyr of popular education. I'm excited to learn more. That was, yeah. that was really fun. These people are all really, yeah. It's so nice. It's so nice not to do one where you're like, and then he turned into a massive piece of shit and started doing some horrible <laughs> yep. stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's, totally. like a, it's like a cleanse. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Uh, James, yeah. do you have anything you'd like to plug at the end here? Uh, you should listen to our other podcast where mm. we don't always talk about such happy and wonderful stuff, which is It Could Happen Here. 
Um, if you want to hear my opinions on stuff, hear about the shark I just saw, you can follow me on Twitter. It's uh, at James Stout, which is my name. Um, and I have a book about the popular Olympics. Uh, it's linked in my Twitter bio. It's very expensive. Uh, if you aren't able to access that, then let me know. My DMs are open. I think that's all. Awesome. Margaret, and you have a book that people can purchase, correct? Oh, yeah? I do. I have a book called We Won't Be Here Tomorrow. And it is available wherever you get your books, including such cooperative bookstores as Firestorm Books in Asheville, North Carolina, or Red Emma's in Baltimore, Maryland. It's published by the collectively run publisher, AK Press. Um, is that count as an accent if I just put on an affectation? I voice? like it. Mm -hmm. right, well, yeah. It's a vibe. Yeah. It's authorial. It's very. Yeah. Ah, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I have been on book tour, so I have been talking about it. And you can actually catch <laughs> me on book tour, uh, which yeah. will be happening while you're listening. If you're anywhere in the south and mid-Atlantic and a tiny bit of the Midwest, but by that I really mean Cleveland, <laughs> then you can catch me on tour talking about none of this stuff and instead reading you stories about people who pretend to be orcs or uh, teenage lesbians in love with satanic death cults. Yeah, Is a queen in any of them? Mm -hmm. will, you do your, will you do your queen voice? Uh, uh, well, for I, readings? I used to have a crass cover band called Best Before 1884, which was like my like steampunk <laughs> crass band. And uh, <laughs> I can play big A, little A on accordion. And that is how I will do a queen song, a queen voice. <laughs> okay. Look, go to those shows. Demand that. Yeah. Oh, and God. we'll be and oh, we'll God. be back on uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, Wednesday with a uh, part two. Yay! Yay! Woo! Cool people who did cool stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website coolzonemedia.com or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love at first listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people 
it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.